The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Luke. Soon after healing the centurion slave, Jesus went to a city called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went with him. As he approached the gate of the town, a man who had died was being carried out. He was his mother's only son, and she was a widow. And with her was a large crowd from the town. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion for her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came forward and touched the bier, and the bears stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, rise. The dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized all of them, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has looked favorably on his people. This word about him spread throughout Judea and all the surrounding country. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise to you, Lord, Lord Christ. Christ. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Whether it uh, feels like it or not, um, you are uh, obviously in the time of Pentecost, which stretches uh, from the very end of the Easter and Ascension Tide celebrations to the last day and first day before Advent, a long time. And this is also known in the church, uh, particularly in monastic communities, as ordinary time, ordinary time. And it provided uh, monasteries and uh, priests the opportunity uh, to look at the basic teachings of our church in a relatively slow and careful way. Because, as I said, this went on and on and on. So we are in ordinary time. Recall that uh, ordinary means just what we think, common, commonplace, simple, but it also means rule, the rule, the, the path by which we walk to gain God. And this morning, we hear of various signs and wonders, I think, that may well teach us how we could approach God or approach him better. For instance, in our reading from the Old Testament, we hear of this story of, uh, that God sent, uh, God sent Elijah uh, to this town, Zarephah, and uh, he was there uh, at God's command to do he knew not what. We now know, of course, from the story that uh, he took a small amount of grain and a small amount of oil and provided for the widow and her child in such a way that there was never ending amounts of both. So first, uh, we have to say that something we might emulate about this story is uh, that Elisha showed up. That's obedience. And I don't know about you, but um, I find that a pesky detail in my uh, relationship with, with our Lord and our prayer life. 
And it really just means that, doing what you may not want to do, because God wants you to do it. And really, there's no bones about it. That's what it is. So you can take that for what it's worth. But we can see here, I can't imagine Elisha was all that happy uh, to stumble down to Zapath. Zapath is about six miles south of Sidon. And this is all Gentile country. And what's more, it's pagan country. They were, uh, these towns belong to the Phoenicians who uh, worship Dagon, who is sort of half man, half fish. Uh, and uh, there are all sorts of bizarre rites, which I'm not going to go into, but which I'm sure you'd be interested in hearing. Um, and uh, uh, so he goes down to this town and it's way out of his zone. You know, I, could you hear him muttering? You know, maybe he's got a donkey, probably doesn't. And he's saying, God, what the hell do I have to go down here for? You know, this is, this is so far from Jerusalem where I'm comfortable. But, 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 okay, he argues, but what does he do? He does what he's told. Again, I think I can learn from that. I don't know about you. Doing what you're told. So then he shows up. He shows up in this place despite his reservations. And uh, he sees these people who are starving. And you should know right away that the people who he sees starving, not, all, not only are they pagans and Gentiles, but they are of the worst sort. I've got to tell you, the worst sort. This is this widow. Remember, if you're married, it's okay. But if your husband dies and you're a woman in this culture, forget about it. Forget about it. Seriously, you will be your extended family might take you in, usually doesn't. And there you go out on the street with a shopping cart full of stuff wandering around. That's the truth. Really, that's what it was. And also, based on this idea that uh, good people have good things happen and bad people have bad things happen. This, this is a bad person and nobody should be concerned about this person. Nobody. In fact, if you were concerned about this person, you may catch the contagion, the illness of this sad woman. God doesn't care because he wants Elijah to be his vessel to show that no matter who you are, your soul shines to God, no matter who you are. And in fact, I think this is true for myself. I'm the one who's guilty of making distinctions and being judgmental. Not God. God could care less about what class you're in, what college degrees you have, etc., etc. So, here he is. Elijah is down with the widow, and he makes certain requests. And, uh, by the way, this is a very classic form of a story, this, this whole thing about feeding somebody famous and then something happens. Um, but the main thing for me is, is that the, the widow has this little bowl that the cornmeal is in, and there's hardly any left. And she has this little cruet of oil, and there's not many, much left in that. And so, basically, Elijah says not to worry. You know, who is this guy to say not to worry? I'm going to go die, right? I'm going off to a corner to die. And who, who's to say that? And suddenly, the little bowl of corn cannot be empty, no matter how much you take. The little cruet of oil cannot be drained, no matter what. 
what is this? I think first and most obviously, this is a sign of the plenteousness of God's grace. Grace. Remember, this is a miracle. This is a miracle affected on people who, quote unquote, don't deserve anything. Don't deserve anything. And so that's the first thing. But the second thing I like about this is it's a little bold and it's a little cruet. It's not a gigantic bowl and a gigantic flagon. No, it's little. In other words, I think what God is saying by this is you need certain things, but you don't need as much as you think you need. And isn't that one of the problems of our lives of this century? We always think we need more. We think we deserve more, etc., etc. And And we deserve more because we're different from other people. And that's what God is saying here. He said, no, no, no. You need what I'm going to give you to need. And this is sufficient. This is sufficient. And you're going to get yourself in trouble if you take more. And maybe in a way, worldwide obesity is a very clear judgment on that observation. That that's on us, so to speak. So, in addition to showing up, in addition to making this bread, this uh, cornmeal and this uh, flagon never-ending, God is showing us what we need, what we need. And it's pretty obvious that, you know, I mean, the widow doesn't eat that much and neither does the kid. So, that's understandable. But he's talking to us, you know. Enough is enough. And too much is too much. And we're going to get in trouble We're going to get in trouble. Oh, excuse me. We are in trouble. Right? We are in trouble about too much is too much. Right? I mean, did anybody see the uh, front page of the New York Times yesterday? No. If you didn't, I'll just briefly describe it. It's a picture of a beautiful uh, pink pelican standing on the shore of, of water that's completely befouled with oil. And the bird is a foul, too. The bird can't fly, the bird can't breathe, and the bird will die very soon. And I think, uh, whatever you think of the New York Times, I think that was kind of a, a metaphor or a meditation on what's going on. So, essentially, we should turn our attention to helping us understand what we need and not what we want. Now, in the widow's case, this is very simple. She had a need, and God fed her. But we have a need of God, but maybe we don't have a want of God. Now, what I mean by this is the uh, bright red fire truck at Christmas prayer. Dear God, I want the bright red fire truck under the Christmas tree, and I want it now. All right? You, You hear that prayer. It's a want prayer. It's a prayer about controlling God. It's a prayer about putting yourself above God. God's not going to pay any attention. None. No. God will pay attention if you can discern what he is sending you and what you need. That requires a little self-reflection. And sometimes, by the way, the self-reflection and the gap between where you are and where you want to be, that the need is for you to go on pilgrimage, to pray, to think, to close that gap. 
to close that gap so that we are of God. And this whole uh, Pentecost season uh, provides the basic sort of meat and potatoes of salvation history. And this is no exception. So we should not be praying for what we want. I, I, unfortunately, that is something I do. And, I, and I, I know I shouldn't. But the reason I, I do it is it's much easier than asking for what I need because that makes me frightened because maybe I wouldn't get it. Or, and maybe this is worse, if God gave me what I needed, maybe I'd be so, I don't know, jaded or oil covered or whatever that I wouldn't know what it was. I wouldn't even know, you know. But whatever, I think we're enjoying, we're begging, God is begging us to seek from him what we need. And just like in this little story, what happens if you do that? He feeds you and he feeds you as much as you need. Again, maybe not as much as you think you need. So a lot of things in there, I think, that help us in our simple meditations, and they can occur anywhere, anytime, with a small piece of scripture. You just need to think to yourself, what, what does this really mean to me? And what can I do about it? Remember, we're going to be honoring some young people in a little while who have done something which is service to God. That's what this is. And they will learn and they are better for it. I know that. I know that. But what about our story in Luke about this healing event? Now, the first thing you should note is that uh, we, always, we always have to put this in context, but um, it says uh, that, the, that the experience uh, of the centurion, he says, soon after healing the centurion's servant, he comes along uh, to this place called Nain. Which is, I've actually been there, it's, uh, it's right near Mount Tabor, and Mount Tabor, uh, you, our guide never stopped saying, was a place where you could go skiing, while down below, you know, you could go into a, a pool that was 94 degrees. And I, I don't know about then, but in any event, that's where this town is, and uh, it's in Galilee, small, tiny little place, dinky little place, and here our Lord is traipsing down there, insignificant place, really, you know? He's going down there, and he's already done one thing, and it's important just to know briefly that story. The centurion was a pagan, but he gave money to the local synagogue. He was a, he was a God-seeker, a God-seeker, and he loved his servant. Now, if you think widows had a bad deal in the ancient world, slaves had a terrible deal. They were, they were just property. They were just like four-legged, uh, two-legged property. But in this case, this man dies. He becomes sick. He dies. And the, the, the centurion is beside himself with pain and grief. So he hears Jesus is in the neighborhood. He goes out to meet Jesus. And you know what? There's no interaction between the sick ser- servant and Jesus. Instead... Centurion says to Jesus, look, I, I know you can do this. Could you do it? You know, I don't know how far away he was, a mile or something. And guess what? He did it. That, that's the story. He healed this man, you know, from a distance. Why? Because that's what the kingdom of God is like. It can do what it wants. And all we can do is respond. Respond. That was an act of love. That's what we have to do, too. 
So now he's in this dinky town and this kid is dead. And remember what I was saying about the widow. Once you lose a male, a male person, you're finished. You're finished. And this this guy had died and the widow was right there, could not be consoled. And Jesus touches the body and this person comes to life. Now, remember, um, we've heard in other stories that people, when they're dead and come to life, they're supposed to eat something. Well, this is sort of similar. He speaks. So what does that mean? That's the spirit. You know, you, you blow air out into the air when you speak. So this was to show that this was no ghost. It, it was just a living human being who once was dead and now was alive. Also, Luke makes a point of saying this. The disciples and a large crowd were with Jesus. All right. Also, there was a large crowd coming out of the town with the widow. Also, there were the disciples. Also, there were the beer carriers. It's beginning to sound like Woodstock. You know, there's a lot of people out there. And Jesus does this in person, up close, to show those people. And what was their first reaction? I think very natural. (laughs) Completely terrified. That's what it was. That's what it was. And then they started to praise God because they put it together. That it could only be God that could do something like this. And of course it, it, it scared them a lot. Of course it did. It's nothing that came even close to their experience. But those acts are acts which, when you're standing there, make a huge difference in your life. And I would suggest, as faithful Christians, our reading of these texts can do the same. Maybe not as dramatically, but they can. They can show us who's in charge. But not only that, they say, oh yeah, I remember Easter. This is something about death and resurrection. That's what our Lord promises us. He promises us that. And because he does, maybe I can be kinder to somebody else. Maybe I can know God better. Maybe I can serve him better because of these acts. And that's what they're for. They're for the the revelation of the power of God. So we've got, uh, I think it's about 22 weeks this year in Pentecost. We've got a lot of time in front of us. And um, you remember those summer essays? Well, I think you should all read the Bible and then bring in, an et- bring in essays uh, on each book of the Bible uh, to Father Bokur, um And we'll, we'll all grade them. No, no. But seriously, I think it's always an opportunity to do, to do something, even though we keep saying, well, I'm really busy. Of course you're busy. Everybody's busy. But I don't, want to, I don't want to put you on the spot and say, are you really too busy for God? No, you don't want to, you don't want to go there, right? No. So you just do something little and think about how this affects you. I think that's the best thing because sometimes, you know, Scripture doesn't really hit you the way it should, you know. But sort of my attempts today are just little things to help me and you to see that um, God is here. He is active among us and we can do nothing but serve him and love him, uh, given his power to guide us. And so uh, those those things being the case, I I guess I uh, I want to uh, 
send you all out with a, a sort of a blessing. This comes from a, a, a woman who's called an anchoress. This is Julian of Norwich. An anchoress was basically a person who lived alone. And she was a, a, a nun who lived by herself and was a, a mystic. And she lived uh, in the 14th and 13th, uh, sorry, the uh, 13th, uh, 14th and 15th century. And th- these are words which she came to her in a vision, and she used many, many times in her works. I can make all things well. I will make all things well. I shall make all things well. And thou canst see for thyself that all manner of things shall be very well. Amen.